This recording is intended to be used as an educational resource for healthcare providers. It is in no way a substitute for the independent decision making and judgment of a qualified healthcare professional. It should not be used to make a diagnosis or to overrule the advice of a qualified healthcare provider, nor should it be used to provide advice for emergency medical treatment. Pediatric Primary Palliative Care by Dr. Richard Goldstein. Introduction. So I'd like to talk to you today about pediatric primary palliative care. But before I do, uh, let me provide some background on palliative care for children. Palliative care aims to improve the quality of life of children facing life-threatening illnesses and their families through the prevention and relief of suffering by early identification and treatment of pain and other problems whether those problems are physical, psychosocial, or spiritual. The principles apply to children with life-threatening illnesses, but also to children with other chronic pediatric disorders. Palliative care best begins early in life-limiting illness and continues irrespective of whether or not a child receives disease-directed treatment. Effective palliative care requires a broad interdisciplinary approach. Most of the time when we talk about the interdisciplinary approach, we're talking about the constitution of a palliative care team. Typically a physician, a nurse, a social worker, maybe other psychosocial clinicians and um, members of the clergy. However, in our conversation today, I want to talk about a broader sense of an interdisciplinary approach which will become clearer later. People imagine when we're talking about palliative care that the patient is a young child who's dying from cancer. But in fact, there are four kinds of conditions that are appropriate for pediatric palliative care. The first, including children with advanced cancer, would be conditions for which curative treatment is possible but may fail. This category can also expand to include things like children with complex cardiac disease. Another group would be children with conditions requiring intensive long-term treatment aimed at maintaining the quality of life. By that I mean children with cystic fibrosis, severe immunodeficiencies, muscular dystrophy, for example. Another group are children with progressive conditions in which treatment is exclusively palliative after diagnosis. That would include children with progressive metabolic disorders, severe chromosomal disorders, severe osteogenesis imperfecta, to name a few. And the final group would be with children with conditions involving severe non-progressive disability, which can cause extreme vulnerability to health complications. And by that I mean a child who has severe cerebral palsy with recurrent infection or difficult to control symptoms, a child with severe neurologic sequelae of a, of a bad episode of infectious disease, or children who've suffered anoxic or hypoxic brain injuries. And in fact, when we study children who are in the pediatric palliative care programs that exist, we find that they are of many different ages, that cancer is not the leading diagnosis, but genetic or congenital disorders is the leading category of diagnoses, followed by neuromuscular disorders, 
that these children receive care and live in many different settings, whether it's the home, hospital ward, intensive care unit, hospices or clinics. They're on a lot of medicine. The mean number of medications is nine. 10% of them have a tracheostomy and 60% have some sort of a feeding tube. All this is to underscore the importance of complex chronic conditions. But a secondary and important issue is that if you follow these children for a year after enrollment in pediatric palliative care, only 30% of these children had died and 70% of them continue to live. And in fact, it's not really news to anyone that children with complex chronic conditions make up an, uh, an increasing uh, share of, um, of patients and patient care in children's hospitals. If we look at um, the number of patients, the lengths of stays, the cumulative charges, we find that children with complex chronic conditions uh, increasingly are the um, leading uh, subpopulation of patients in a children's hospital. Furthermore, the trend is that more and more of these children, whatever their age, are dying at home. And at the same time, more and more of them are living at home. And if you study these children, you find that only half spend more than two weeks of their last year hospitalized, and over one third spend less than a week in hospital. So these are many children living in many uh, settings who have many providers. And so it should not be a surprise that the American Academy of Pediatrics included in their statement on palliative care for children that minimum standards of pediatric palliative care must include a mechanism to ensure a seamless transition between settings and, I would add, between providers. Put another way, how can we assure that the needs of this growing population are best met and are best met by those who can contribute to various aspects of their care. And so the question right now is whether there is a palliative care focused role for an oncologist wondering about limited options, but who feels the family is not there yet, for a pulmonologist who decides to tolerate a higher and critical baseline PCO2 in their patient with cystic fibrosis, for an ORL surgeon discussing tracheostomy for a significantly impaired, fragile child with complex illness, for a hospitalist or an ICU physician noting recurring admissions for a child, and for a pediatric primary care pediatrician who's been there all along and who also cares for the siblings. Maybe these providers have unique and important contributions to make to the palliative care needs of these patients. Maybe their disease-directed care would be improved if offered with an understanding of the larger hopes and goals for the child. Take the primary care provider, for example. Role of primary care providers. Most primary care pediatricians would say that their role for children with complex chronic conditions is largely one of signing the orders for the VNA, taking care of insurance referrals, treating acute minor illnesses often at the end of the day or on, or on a weekend when the subspecialist can't, 
filling and prescribing emergency prescriptions and refills. And often they are kept unaware of developments and decisions during hospitalizations. At the same time, those PCPs are often identified as the child's real doctor. And there are, there are considerable strengths from a relationship that may pre-exist the circumstances prompting palliative care, or the PCP themselves may have made the life-threatening diagnosis. There are strengths in recognizing the whole child outside of their illness and the family, including siblings, and understanding how hospitalization is a disruption and a kind of a failure. And certainly no one would argue with the strengths that come out of a, continu a continuity of care. It seems that there would be great promise in their involvement. So we actually studied this and we asked parents who'd lost a child in Massachusetts about the involvement of their primary care pediatricians. And overall, the PCPs seem to have a very limited role in end-of-life care and decision-making. Most parents expressed satisfaction with that role and understood the limitations that the PCPs faced. None spoke negatively, expressed blame, or felt abandoned. They found great value in the PCPs staying informed and up-to-date, expressing empathy and helping them navigate the medical world. But at the same time, very few PCPs made hospital visits. There were problems with cross coverage. And uh, overall, the role noted was fairly marginal. Now, while some PCPs attended funerals or extended sympathy, parents reported limited involvement over time during their family's grief, which actually bothered them quite a bit. This was probably the greatest area of emotion in these interviews and seems rooted in the fact that they have relied on their PCPs for their perspective and, converse, and their conversations just to get through, and they feel, they, they feel abandoned when that no longer exists at following the child's death. And now there are many reasons for this kind of marginalized invol involvement. What I would like to do with the PCPs in mind, but other non-palliative care specialists in mind, is provide a way in to the care of these patients that's relevant to their palliative care needs. And I feel buoyed by the fact that despite this sort of minimal involvement described for PCPs, that when a physician became involved, even inconstantly, due to practice limitations. They were the valued voice among all the physicians involved. That that PCP was looked to for the continuity of judgment. That PCP was looked to for their effective communication. That PCP was appreciated for their bereavement support. And the promise of that sort of involvement is, like, is what we'd like to build upon today. Primary versus specialty palliative care. So I'd like to introduce to you the idea of primary palliative care and specialty palliative care. Specialty palliative care, which is what I'm practicing currently, is meant to be devoted to the most complex patients. Among the things that a specialist in, in palliative care 
might devote themselves to would be the management of refractory or complex pain and, and complex symptoms, the management of more complex depression, anxiety, grief, and existential distress in the patient, assistance with conflict, conflict resolution regarding goals or treatments in very complicated and difficult cases, whether those conflicts are within families, between staff and families, among treatment teams, and assistance with cases of near futility. At the same time, I'd like to describe now a role that's much more accessible and much more closer to what people are doing already in areas outside of palliative care, and we'll call that primary palliative care. And in that role would be a feeling of confidence with basic management of pain and complex symptoms. A basic management of adjustment, behavior, and sibling issues related to the care of a child. And, and comfort with basic discussions about prognosis, about suffering, about goals of care, and about code status. Tools for primary palliative care. And so I'd like to devote the rest of this talk to six tools for primary palliative care. The first is using an awareness of prognosis. The second is under, understanding disclosure. The third is making the most of the benefits of concurrent care. The fourth is understanding the difference between getting the DNR and exploring goals of care. The fifth is knowing about advanced care planning tools. And the sixth is assuring that comfort care forms and most forms are in the home. Awareness of prognosis. So tool one is, is using an awareness of prognosis. What is prognosis? Most people think about it as an actuarial estimate of survival, a sort of objective data-driven prediction. The patient will live a certain amount of time, they will live a certain amount of time before they need to make a decision about tracheostomy or other technology, or it might be expressed as a patient's chances of surviving to a certain time. Uh, families and, and patients look to doctors to provide this kind of information. One uh, difficulty is that doctors overestimate survival, and they estimate survival by a factor of greater than five. So there are limitations to that. Families also appreciate a more experiential or subjective kind of prediction of prognosis. In my experience, in other children with the same constellation of findings, in other children who have presented this late in the illness, I would expect A, B, and C. That tends to be just as inaccurate. But in both cases, this focus on death and disability has its limitations. And there is also the issue of what life will be like and when decisions may need to occur that is part of what people are asking for when they look to physicians for prognosis. So let me see if I can shift things a little bit and give you a way into looking at prognosis in a different sort of a way. Research on illness trajectories in palliative care has found that there are basically three different trajectories 
uh, of prognosis for, uh, for seriously ill patients. The first is a period of time with relatively uh, minimal disability, followed by a period of time of fairly rapid decline. A good example of this might be a, a child with cancer where they may show up uh, with um, not feeling not too sick from the cancer and functioning pretty well. And it is only at an advanced stage that the, the cancer takes its toll as do treatments. The second trajectory is a trajectory with a gradual and certain decline punctuated by periods where acute illness leads to a, an exacerbation of symptoms and a deterioration of clinical status. In recovery, the previous level of function and the previous health status may be reachieved or may not, but it is all part of a decline. And at a certain part point in that decline, uh, families are wondering if this is it, if this trip to the hospital be, will be the one that really does it, if this is the one where the disease will take such a toll that either the child won't survive or they'll survive in such a highly impaired state that they would have to reconsider how things will proceed. And the third group is, uh, is uh, characterized by a kind of long-term disability and dwindling. So this would be, for example, a child with Tay-Sachs disease who shortly after the time of diagnosis has a decline in function and then has progressive decline, progressive disability, and low, lower and lower levels of functioning until an event comes along that leads to their death. I believe that you can use an awareness of these trajectories to help parents and patients be better prepared for decision-making. And I will challenge you to think in these ways as opposed to the more typical framing of whether at any, at any uh, state of the progression there are any options left. So thinking again about trajectory one in a patient where you expect the uh, period of significant decline may be coming, you may find a time not in crisis to acknowledge that they've been fighting very hard and doing everything that could be done and everything that has had everything that they've been asked to do uh, to, to try to defeat this illness. But you can follow that by saying, but do you, do you ever worry about knowing when it might be too much for your child and what to do then? That may be a very productive question to work your way toward when you understand a certain uh, pattern of prognosis in a patient. For trajectory two, again, not in the midst of crisis, hopefully, you may acknowledge to the family that at a certain point that these decompensations have been really extreme. It seems like the patient just gets more sick each time and never gets out of it before an, another admission comes or another serious illness comes serious illness episode comes. And then you could ask them, do you worry that the decisions in the hospital to always do more are, pro are prolonging the suffering more than helping him? 
Do you worry that you're not making the right choices here? That's a primary care question. That's a primary physician question and comes out of a trusting long-term relationship um, and would be very helpful in the care of these children. And before I set up the scenario for this third trajectory, which is the, the chronic prolonged dwindling, I should tell you that I think it's very important for patients who, who confront this kind of, these kind of illnesses and families who have to make decisions in the midst of this to have, a decision, uh, to have a discussion early on about whether there are certain conditions, certain treatment decisions that they would really regret making, if only so that later in the course of the illness, you can use their judgment of their child's illness in a conversation about the decisions that they're making in the, in the present. And you may say to them, when I think back to discussions we had early on about what your hopes were for her, I wonder how you think about them now. I wonder how you explain the difference between what you expected then and what you expected uh, you'd be doing then with how things are playing out now. From a compassionate and understanding perspective, I think this is a very productive and helpful conversation to have. Having had that conversation, that is information that you can then bring back to medical teams and other settings and contribute to optimizing the care for these patients. Disclosure. Tool number two, discussing disclosure. So parents often have the wish that the doctor will go into the room and explain to their child what's going to happen to them. And I understand that and I respect that. But I think about it in as a sort of uh, as analogous to the procedure rooms uh, and the way we handled procedure rooms uh, when I was first in training. And that was there was a bias towards sending the parents out because it would be too difficult for them and uh, letting us take care of the child because we knew what we were doing and, uh, and th things would, would really go along better then. And what in fact happened was that the parents were tortured being outside and the child was tortured being inside and separated from his parents. And so in, in thinking about disclosure, the first point I wanna emphasize is the importance of helping parents, helping parents get to a place where they can discuss these things, discuss prognosis, discuss expectations, discuss what they're up against with their child. And the only way to help parents to do this is to talk with them about it. So there are some basic things to keep in mind when thinking about disclosure. The first is that initial disclosure to children usually does come from their parents and that the parents need to deal with it first. And part of being a pediatrician is helping parents to deal with it first. People also worry about what their child might be understanding related to death, related to serious illness. And there are certain things that, are, that play out to be fairly important. Uh, the first is that by the age of eight years, a child has a sense of personal mortality. 
They know that they themselves are going to die. They're not going to go to another place. They may talk as if they're going to go to another place and be with relatives that are departed, but they have a sense of personal mortality. And parents should be talked to about that so that they can frame their comments to their child in a way that lives up to the moment. A second thing to consider is that a 10-year-old, more or less, is able to speak about their experiences, about their preferences and decisions at the end of life. And that parents could be advised to have those kinds of conversations or to start those conversations and bring you in to include their child's preferences as they confront greater illness. Another important factor is the emergence of an internal world, which occurs in children really at ages beyond toddlerhood. But one of the critical issues of having an internal private world is that the child may, like all children do, and especially children who are sick, want to be the good son or daughter. And this can allow for a situation that we describe as mutual pretense, where there's kind of a false uh, front that's put up. I will act like I'm not distracted by death. I'm not too bothered by what's happening. The parents will be, will be um, highly unrealistic and avoidant of any of these difficult things. And this sort of a mutual pretense tends to be a very isolating and not necessarily contributing to a better death, uh, better illness experience, and a better bereavement. And it is an important thing for clinicians to be aware of and to bring to parents' attention when appropriate. Another issue is that terminally ill children may be grieving the loss of their abilities or their future. They may also, importantly, worry about being forgotten they may worry about experiencing pain, or they may worry about causing distress in those that they'll leave behind. These last three issues, worrying about being forgotten, worrying about pain, worrying about hurting their mother and father with the sadness that they'll experience, that, they, that they'll experience after they die, are important things for parents to worry about and to reassure their child about and to talk about. And then the final issue that I would bring up in terms of disclosure is that it's really not the telling, but the listening. So parents worry inordinately about what they'll say, how they'll say it, and that's all very important. But, they, but more important, perhaps, is just being able to abide by their child, listen to their distress, not be unrealistic in their response, and be with them in that moment. Important research was done on this matter of disclosure, and I think it's important for us to keep in mind. This was a study of parents speaking with dying children, and it found that no parent who had talked with their child about their death regretted doing so. Of those parents who did not speak frankly about imminent death, 27% regretted not having done so. And of those who did not talk about their child about imminent death, but sensed that their child was aware, 47% felt regret. Regret's an enemy. And I think parents need to be helped in talking to, their to, talking to their children in a way that's authentic to the way that they parent, but also rises to the intensity 
and to the demands of the situation. Concurrent care. Tool number three is an awareness of concurrent care. Embedded in this conversation is that many people understand hospice or worry that talking about hospice means giving up all disease-directed treatment. And that is something that thankfully we don't have to worry about at this time in history. The Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, popularly known as Obamacare, states that children under the age of 21 who have been diagnosed with life-limiting illness and are eligible for Medicaid or CHIP programs may receive all services that are related to the treatment of a child's life-limiting illness. This allows these young people to have palliative and hospice care services while they're receiving other disease-modifying treatments. Now, physicians, to qualify for this, physicians must still certify that the child is within the last six months of life if the, if the disease runs its normal course. But it does remove the either-or and the sense of um, having to forego any disease-directed treatment and still have the support at, in the home of hospice. Now, of course, we have to be careful when we bring up this topic of hospice because there are conversations that are hovering in the winds when we bring it up. Discussions about preserving nurses, preferences for location of death, the implications of technology and choices in favor or against technology, and preferences beyond the wish that the child will die peacefully at sleep and be discovered having already died. Those are things that you must be prepared for when talking about the involvement of hospice, even in a concurrent care situation. However, the importance of more support and greater responsiveness to symptoms in the home of seriously ill children, particularly those with life-limiting illness, cannot be overstated. And in Massachusetts, we are lucky enough to have a pediatric palliative care network for those children who do not necessarily have a six-month prognosis. The Pediatric Palliative Care Network focuses on the unmet physical, emotional, social, and spiritual needs of children in Massachusetts with life-limiting illnesses. Services are provided at no cost to children 18 years old or younger who have a life-limiting illness without a documented six-month or less survival. There are 10 licensed hospices throughout the state, all skilled in pediatric palliative care, that are part of this network. And the services include, but are not limited to, pain and symptom management, assessment and case management, spiritual care, social services and counseling for the patient and other family members, such as siblings, volunteer support, respite care, emergency services, and bereavement care for the family members in the event of death. Do not resuscitate versus goals of care. Tool number four, not getting the DNR, but rather exploring the goals of care. Many people think the palliative care teams are expert in getting the DNR. And I think that really misses the point. What we try to do is sit down with families and understand the situation as they see it, and try to understand what their priorities are, 
try to understand how they're making their way, what the important supports are, what the deals are they have with the child, what the legacy of other family members might be, and how they're getting through. That is a different kind of a conversation. And I'd like to um, encourage you to move away from the DNR conversation and more towards that. What is the problem with the DNR conversation? Well, it's obviously the case that it's important to have clear uh, orders and a clear idea of what needs to happen in the hospital during a period of decompensation. But the problems with DNR conversations is that they often occur late in the context of crisis when parents and the child are not their best and it is certainly not a time for thoughtfulness. They often occur without a context with a focus just on the critical issues of the moment, uh, ignoring often the big picture needed to make informed uh, decisions. They focus on procedures and not only is this menu approach of do you want this, do you want that, do you not want this, do you not want that overwhelming to parents, but parents aren't experts on procedures. Parents are experts on values and priorities for their child and, and that needs to be emphasized in our communication. And then the final issue with DNR conversations is that they are typically, or should I say often, framed as doing something, doing everything, versus doing nothing. And things just aren't so simple. So within the context of primary palliative care, is there an alternative? And one way to think our way into this is to understand that there might be a trigger to uh, allow us in a non-crisis situation to have conversations. Now, obviously, conversations that take place too early may elicit more distress and lead to more decisions for aggressive care. And as I said before, uh, physicians, we wait until we think the patient is ready, but it is often very late in the illness course because our, prognosti our prognostication is so poor. But what if you asked yourself, would I be surprised if this patient died in the next year? If the answer is no, that you would not be surprised, then maybe the patient is appropriate for a, what I'm gonna call a checklist conversation and get to in a second. And by the way, a no response to this surprise question predicts seven times greater odds of death in the next year versus a yes response. So what do I mean by a checklist conversation? Researchers at Dana-Farber and at the Brigham and Women's Hospital have begun to roll out a checklist project um, for patients with serious illness to uh, be engaged in conversations in various settings, not necessarily specialized palliative care settings. And the checklist really focuses on seven areas of conversation. So a pediatric checklist conversation may focus on prognostic understanding. What is your understanding of where your child is now with this illness? Information preferences. How much information do you want? 
and can your child handle about what is likely to be ahead with this illness. Goals. If your child's health situation worsens, what are your most important goals for your child and for your family? Fears and worries. What are your biggest fears and worries about the future with this illness? Trade-offs. If your child becomes sicker, how much do you think it makes sense to have him or her go through different treatments for the possibility of gaining more time? Function. Are there specific conditions or states that you would not find acceptable for your child to be in? And family. How much have you and your child talked about these issues? The opportunity of these kind of conversations, even if done in a fairly formulaic way, is that you make the most of your family's trust in you and in your involvement. There is great potential to strengthen the relationship. And you can provide valuable information coming from that relationship that's helpful in other settings. Advanced Care Planning Tools. Tool number five, Advanced Care Planning Tools. These are specific pamphlets that are more focused and, and uh, geared to end of life and are structured conversations uh, to elicit patient preferences as they get closer to death. They are based on the Five Wishes document. The Five Wishes document is most, was developed for geriatric patients and is legally binding in 42 states in this country. And those five wishes are the person I want to make decisions for me when I can't, the kind of medical treatment I want or don't want, how comfortable I want to be, how I want people to treat me, and what I want my loved ones to know. It is available in an adolescent vo version called Voicing My Choices, a planning guide for adolescents and young adults, and also a, um, a child-friendly version called My Wishes. I do want to bring attention to Voicing My Choices. Research on adolescents uh, related to uh, five wishes found that um, adolescents had greater, uh, had further concerns about how they would be remembered and um, how they wanted to be treated. And so Voice in My Choices is an expanded version of that with some of the language that is more appropriate to teens. These are all available from, uh, from a website called agingwithdignity.org. Comfort care in most forms. And the final tool that I'd recommend is assuring that comfort care forms and most forms are in the home. Comfort care forms are basically a DNR form or an expression of limitations of uh, desired limitations of treatment, uh, fairly explicitly stated in the most form that parents can have in their home so that should the child become more ill in the home, uh, treatment decisions do not fall to the default. And by default, I mean that when a family calls 911, in the absence of any other orders that are in the home, a child must be resuscitated. So comfort care forms and most forms in the home 
support the parents' hard-made decisions. It gives them greater control and ability to involve EMT services, not simply for resuscitation, but for comfort-directed measures, and are important for all children with guarded prognosis who are living in the community. The Massachusetts Comfort Care Form, which is in the process of being phased out, but has not been phased out currently, is essentially a documentation of a conversation around DNR between a physician and uh, a family. Uh, decisions can be made in, at the moment uh, such that this comfort care form does not need to be presented um, to EMTs if the family chooses at that time for full resuscitation. But it does give them peace of mind that for, for instance, if the child, as is often the wish, goes peacefully during sleep, that the EMTs won't come in and try to resuscitate. These forms are available online from the state and uh, are a tremendous comfort to the families, um, provided that the appropriate conversations have been had about them. So I hope I have uh, successfully introduced you to this concept of primary palliative care and provided you with some useful tools to review what those tools are. Number one is using an awareness of prognosis. Number two is understanding disclosure. Number three is making the most of the benefits of concurrent care. Number four is emphasizing not getting the DNR, but rather exploring the goals of care. Number five is knowing about advanced care planning tools. And number six is assuring comfort care forms and most forms are in the homes. And finally, I hope that this concept of, palliative, of primary palliative care gives you a way in and a way to bring your strengths to work in an interdisciplinary fashion towards assuring the best care for our sickest patients. This recording is a production of Open Pediatrics, a free and open access resource for pediatric clinicians worldwide. For more pediatric care materials or to join our global community, please visit our website at openpediatrics.org.